So good evening, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we enter into this final week of school, we ask you to pour your spirit upon us so that we may live with the joy of the resurrection, the peace of Christ during this stressful time, that we may keep our eyes focused on him, and through beholding him and living in his gaze, uh, we may be able to close out this year the praise and glory of your holy name. We ask this all as we ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So thanks everybody for coming. Uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to talk for a little bit first, sort of set the tone, and then we'll have our last adoration, period of behold. We've got all of our, our vocalists and instrumentalists singing, so it'll be like... Traveling Wilburys, everybody getting together, big super group, so we're excited about that. So these Monday nights, which have been fairly well attended throughout the course of the year, been called Behold. I think there was some sort of a discussion or debate on what we should call these nights. And, and it was Behold, as far as I understand, primarily because in adoration, that's what we're doing. We are beholding Jesus. We are adoring him present in the monstrance in the Eucharist. And not just adoring him, but also singing praise and giving him glory. And so Jesus in the Eucharist is the focus. And it's something which I've really seen, particularly over the course of this year and during the time of coronavirus, a sort of renewed love and interest in Christ's true presence in the Eucharist. But what I want to do is, you might guess by now, I like to do, I want to see it from a different light. I want to look at it from a little different perspective. Instead of focusing on us beholding Jesus, I want to look at something else. Many of you may know the famous story from St. Jean Vianney. Supposedly there was a man who every day would go into his church and would just sit there and pray in front of the tabernacle, in front of the Lord. And he finally went up to the man and said, you know, sir, when you're praying, what are you doing? What is your experience? And the man gave sort of one of the most simple answers. I look at him and he looks at me. I look at him and he looks at me. We focus so much on our looking at Jesus in the Eucharist, our gazing upon him, our adoring him, we forget that he's looking at us. That Christ is seeing and beholding each and every one of us present in this church. And so, to use the fancy word, there's a bi-directionality. We are gazing upon him, but more importantly, we are in his gaze. Christ sacramentally present in the Eucharist is beholding each and every one of us. And I think most of us can speak from experience that it's not easy for us to allow another person to look at us, to behold us, to catch their gaze. And so I think a big part of it is because, well, that person is looking at me. 
They're, they're, they're staring at me. They're gazing upon me. We feel their eyes of judgment. They're criticizing me because they're looking at me so much. And we should know by now in our minds that that's not the look of Christ. Christ is not there like some, some mean teacher waiting for us to fail. He's not looking at us with judgmental or critical eyes. His is a look of love. Christ beholds us. He looks at us with great love. But even if we know that other person is looking at us, not to judge us, it can still be very, very difficult. Particularly if someone is gazing upon us for us to, to go back and look at them to be able to hold their gaze, particularly individuals who sometimes we feel might stare into our souls. I was remembering a story in Rome when I would go there and give tours of St. Peter's. I was asked early on to start giving tours to Mother Teresa's sisters, the missionaries of charity. And you go through, and you're in St. Peter's, and here I am, a sort of tall American with a bunch of little five-foot brown sisters walking through St. Peter's and giggling, but the sister that was leading them the first time was an Irish sister. Her name was Sister Patrick, and Sister Patrick was, and still is, scary holy. And she had these piercing blue eyes, and she would stare into your soul. Really, it was the first time I had really experienced that. Now she's number three in the Missionaries of Charity. She prays for me every day, so I'm, I think I'm doomed. But doomed to suffer, those missionaries at Charity pray for. I want you to be holy, Father, so you will suffer. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to catch her gaze, but it's hard to know when someone like that is looking at you, even though you know she's not judging you. She's looking at you with love. And that's the thing. Even a gaze of love from someone who might be our spouse, our friend, our parent, who looks at us with love, it is hard to allow others to behold us. We get uncomfortable when that person is looking on us with such tremendous love. Why, though? Why do we have a hard time allowing others to look upon us? Why do we have a hard time allowing others to behold us even when we know they are looking at us with tremendous love? especially when it comes to Jesus, especially when it comes to Jesus. There are a lot of different reasons, which, you know, I think we'll be able to explain some of them. And one of them, I think, sort of ties back, if you heard my homily yesterday, it's easy for us when we look at evil to see ourselves in evil. It's always easiest for us to say, I, I can look at myself, and while this look of love, this person is highlighting what's good in me, it's much easier for me to focus on what's bad. Oh yeah, I know you love me, but still, I, I made this mistake. Or still, I'm imperfect in this way. That's always the easiest. But even outside of that, the real reason all of us are this way is that whenever we are being gazed upon, particularly when we feel that the Lord is beholding us we feel exposed. We feel vulnerable. And so they can see us. We're exposed. To be vulnerable means to be open, to be wounded. And even if we know the Lord is not going to hurt us, we still 
feel naked in front of him. It's like Adam and Eve. After the original sin, what do they do? Out of that shame, they cover themselves. They hide themselves from God, Yahweh, who is walking through the garden. They're afraid of being judged. They're ashamed of what they've done. That's a very particular type of thing. And I've seen it so often. Whenever individuals commit grave sin, they know they've done something wrong. They often won't step into church. I can't come into Mass. I can't receive the Eucharist. They'll even stay away from confession because they think the eyes of God are there to judge them, to condemn them. And so they run away. Particularly during the time, they should actually be running to Jesus, running to receive his mercy. But outside of shame and outside of sin, and that feeling that all of us have whenever we fall into grave sin, sometimes the look of love, that experience of being loved so intensely by the Lord is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. We cannot take it. It's that, that ocean of mercy that is pouring upon us. We can't handle so much light. We can't handle so much love. We can't handle so much mercy. Because I said, well, we have a hard time seeing the good in ourselves. It's easy for us to focus on the evil. And so there's so much light. Well, instead of that light shining on us and seeing, hey, the Lord really loves me. I am his beloved child. We tend to focus on the sin. We tend to focus on the lack. And we hone in on that and we say we can't handle it. And so we turn away because his love is so overwhelming. And so often we hide like Adam and Eve or we just get up and get away. We run, we fly because we cannot handle being loved unconditionally. And quite often, maybe we've never experienced that before, so we don't know what it's like. And so as I was thinking about this, how, how to give examples of this? The two individuals that I think are the best would be the two apostles, Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. Both whom Jesus loved intensely. They were best friends for three years. They walked together, lived together, ate together, traveled together. And Jesus looked at them both after they sinned. And so let's look at Judas first. I talked about this a little bit as we prepared for Holy Week. Why did Jesus, Judas betray Jesus? You don't really have a clear answer for that. Jesus would have never double-crossed him. Jesus didn't do anything to hurt him. And so you can sort of sort through it. And for me, the only real answer is this. Judas, potentially because of his guilt, because of his shame, because of his insecurity, he could not handle being loved that unconditionally and intently by Jesus. He couldn't handle it. It was too much. And for whatever reason, it was going on in his heart. And so because of that, whenever, instead of hiding, he kicked back. He went out in the attack and he betrayed Jesus. And so when he comes with the guards in the Garden of Gethsemane and he kisses Jesus and he betrays him, you can imagine that Judas had a hard time looking Jesus in the eye, but Jesus wanted to look him in the eye. 
And it wasn't a look of judgment. It was a look of tremendous pain. Here was his best friend stabbing him in the back for nothing. Granted, it was all part of God's plan. You betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And that's a look of love, though. He never judged him. It was painful for him. In fact, it was probably the most painful thing that Jesus endured. It hurt him. But Judas couldn't take it. Couldn't take it before. That's why he betrayed Jesus. And he couldn't take it. And his response was turning in on himself. That self-hatred, the shame took over. He couldn't handle. Because Jesus could have forgiven him. Wanted to forgive him. The mercy was there. But he couldn't accept it. And so he fell into despair. That look overshadowed him. And whether he perceived it as judgment or not, he ended up making the, the wrong choice. But Peter, Scripture tells us that after Peter denies knowing Jesus three times, Jesus, who is there, who's been scourged, who's crowned with thorns, looks at Peter. There's a small little, little note there. And then Peter, that gaze, makes him start crying. And that's when he runs off in the shame. We know that Jesus didn't scowl at Peter. He knew what Peter was going to do. He knew how weak Peter was. But it was that look of love. But what that did for Peter, even though you know he experienced guilt and shame, he didn't turn in on himself. He didn't let that love push him away. And so the resurrection, he was the one who jumped out of the boat in his cassons and ran to Jesus. And you can imagine he might have been nervous. What is Jesus going to say? Is he going to shoot lasers out of his wounds to kill me? No. He gives him the chance to repent by saying, Peter, do you love me? He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't hold it over his head. He doesn't hold him grudge. He gives him the chance to profess his love. And so, experience that overwhelming love of Jesus Peter is able to respond, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And in a little detail that some of you may know, I'm not a Greek scholar at all, but when Jesus first says to Peter, do you love me? He says, do you love me agape? Do you love me totally in the same way that I love you? And Peter's response is in the Greek, yes, I love you philia. It's friendship love. Peter's saying, I don't have that capacity. So Jesus says again, do you love me agape? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, philia. But again, this idea of love, we don't have as many nuances for the words in English. And then finally, Jesus says, do you love me, philia? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you, philia. And here's Jesus, even though he loves him with that total ocean of mercy, he's going to take whatever Peter can give him at that moment. In the same way, he can take whatever we give to him. He's not expecting us to be able to love in that same capacity, but he takes what he gives us, what we give him. And it's Peter's response, even in our sinfulness, even in our weakness, to allow the Lord to behold us. Peter, do you love me? And our response is yes. To allow the Lord to hold our gaze, to stay within his gaze even when we feel unworthy, even when we think that someone cannot love us unconditionally. And I think this is sort of the great obstacle to prayer, a lot of obstacles to prayer. 
But as, as I've talked about over the course of the year, prayer is really nothing more than letting God love us. That's all it really is. It's not a technique. It's not a method. It's not something that you need to succeed in. It's allowing the Lord to love us, allowing the Lord to behold us, behold us so that he can see us and he can delight in us. Why do we go to prayer? I've been telling people this lately. Why do we go to prayer? Because the Lord wants to see us. He wants to spend time with us. It's not about us. He is waiting for us. And so in the Eucharist, he's been waiting for all of us to show up. He cannot wait to see us. That's the great gift. But what happens is, either because of our sin, because of our shame, because of the fact that we cannot take being loved that much, what do we do? We hide or we put up walls. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be vulnerable. We pull down the shades. Lord, you're not going to see me fully. That's not how it is. You can, kind of, you can get a little peek, but you cannot look at me totally. That's what most of us do myself included. We put up the walls. So tonight, this is our prayer. We're here, yes, we're here to adore, we're here to worship, we're going to close out the week, and I want that to happen, but we want to allow Jesus in the Eucharist to behold us, to see us, to make that eye contact. And we're going to do so by asking the Lord to tear down the walls that we've built up that song tonight. Lord, you're the one to tear down the walls. If you prefer science fiction, the, 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 the shield that is over the spaceship, tear it down. Power it down. So that we can let him behold us and see us. Even if we're like, oh, I'm stressed and I feel weak and I messed up this weekend and I hate school. Reflect on the gaze of Jesus. Allow him to see us and try, if you like that imaginative prayer, to imagine you holding Christ's gaze and Christ holding your gaze. And so it would be nice, though, if tonight, oh, the Lord just took that sledgehammer and tore down all the walls. And we have this tremendous experience of God beholding us and allowing him to look at us and to transform us. But, but the truth is, it, it's probably not all going to happen at once. Instead of like a hammer turning into the walls, it's usually going to be gradual, like erosion. And it's something that I talked about this weekend, that Flannery O'Connor quote, good is something under construction. And so we're going to be perfected. We're perfected by Christ's gaze, and his gaze purifies what's bad in us. It burns off the dross. It, it tears down the walls, but it's a gradual process. And if you've never let it begin, let it begin tonight. Don't focus on the bad. Let's focus on the good. Allow the Lord to say, yeah, you focus on the bad, but this is the good stuff. I love you for that and even the bad stuff. Tear down the walls. And the Lord is going to do that through his purifying gaze. So it's a process of becoming. We're always on the journey. It's the good is under construction. We are in a process of becoming. As the Lord, throughout our life, tears down some walls, we build them back up. Tears down our walls, remind us who we are. Until finally, we are able to stand completely in his gaze. 
And so what happens? You saw, noticed, well, we're going to go somewhere with this. We have beholding. We have becoming. And I'll give you a third B, belonging. When we allow the Lord to gaze upon us, we come, we are seen, known, and loved. But we're not hidden. We know who we are. We know the Lord loves us for who we are, not for what we do or in spite of the things that we have done. We know we belong to Jesus. We know God is our Father. We know our identity, and we can live securely in that. And we belong to the Lord. And that in belonging to him, we're not hiding ourselves from him, and we're not belonging, we're hiding ourselves from others. And so we can truly let ourselves be seen, known, and loved by others, and we can see, know, and love others who need to be seen. And so it builds up that belonging, that greater sense of community that comes from being part of the body of Christ. Our allowing Jesus in the Eucharist, his Eucharistic body, to behold us should bring about that deeper connection that we all have as members of the church, belonging to Christ and belonging to each other. And so I'm going to close with this. And this is sort of, I was talking to Matt earlier today, that the beginning of the semester, or last semester, we started with the three seeds. The first behold. I didn't remember what they were, so I found out. It's confidence, community, and consistency. We need to be consistent in our prayer and faith. When I saw that, I said, you know what? They really do line up with the three B's kind of counting backwards. Behold, if we allow ourselves to be held by God, then we know our identity and we can live in confidence. Becoming is what? It's a process, so we have to learn consistency. We've got to keep coming back and allowing the Lord to look at us and to love us and to show us his mercy. And then belonging is community. We build a community. And so that is, should be our reflection, our prayer to we start with the C, we end with the B. We're going to have some time for adoration tonight and confession too, for those who like to go to confession. Great way to kick off this final week. Allow the Lord to look at you. Allow him to behold you. And ask him to tear down the walls so that we can live in the confidence of the sons and daughters of God. Amen.